Mr. Andrew Bittner to come up uh, for today's sermon. So our first reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then if you can pull up our second reading. Our second reading comes... Oh, this is... Okay, so this is a little different. I'm going to pull up my Bible. This is from the Gospel of John. Um, so this reading is from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So I'll just pull this up real quick. So you can just follow along listening. Okay, so the second reading again comes from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, well, it's great to be back here so soon after the last time uh, that I preached. Uh, I just want to thank you for welcoming uh, us, the Bittners, so warmly to come and worship with you this morning. I know that every time that we come down here, uh, that Mary and I feel such a great welcome from Chad and Gina and from all of you. And so uh, we're just incredibly grateful this morning to have the opportunity to dive into God's word and to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together here this morning. 
Now, the last time that I was here, one thing that I had shared is that I'm presently not in full-time active ministry, that right now uh, I'm just working one job, I think kind of for the first time in five or six years, and so just working in the business world right now. Um, I manage a team, when people ask, well, what do you do? I say, well, I manage a team of, of nerds. We basically, we write computer code to do math problems, okay? Um, and so uh, it's an environment I feel very much at home in as a fellow, as a fellow nerd, and so it's, it's a fun place to work. Now, 2020, as many other avenues of uh, life work, was chaos, right? Um, and so not only were we working from home, not only were all of us kind of trying to figure out what was this quarantine and lockdown thing like, when did we need to wear masks, when could we go to restaurants, how far apart did we need to sit? And so work was a lot of the same, um, just in terms of what we were working on from one week to the next sort of seemed like we were bouncing from one crisis to another or from one situation of chaos to another. And there's really never a time for us to just sit, to think, to reflect, to catch our breath, and to kind of think through why are we doing what we're doing, right? And so as the year started to wrap up and as I was thinking of, okay, how am I going to manage my team in 2021? The goal was is that we are going to be less just sort of chaos or crisis-driven, sort of this breathless effort to move from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, without having a chance to put a lot of thought into it. We're, we're going to move beyond that, right? We're going to be more strategic. We're going to set out better plans. We're going to follow those plans, and we're going to minimize the chaos, the crisis. Well, I'll tell you what, what it's uh, May 2nd. And if the goal of 2021 in my work life was to sort of put uh, the strategy back into the way we approach work, four months in it hasn't gone super well. I'm, I'm just going to admit this. I hope my boss isn't watching uh, this sermon on the live feed this morning. But it, it's been a lot of the same, right? Is although COVID is starting to die down and with vaccinations, we're getting some kind of freedoms and mobility back and people are starting to come back and work in the office. It's, it's a lot of the same. It feels like we're kind of bouncing from one thing to the next. And so these great laid plans that I laid out for 2021 so far uh, aren't quite going the way I expected. And I think a lot of us find ourselves uh, at, that, at that point, kind of uh, reflecting on whether it's because of New Year's resolutions or goals or plans that we've laid ourselves, whether for 2021 or just different episodes within our lives that a few months into it, or a few years into it, we take a look at what's happened to this point, and it quite hasn't gone the way that we thought. And so whether it be taking a different approach towards work, or whether it be you know, trying to lose weight or exercise more, or read our Bible and pray more often, whatever it might be, is we might find ourselves into these greatly laid plans that we've made for ourselves. They kind of haven't gone as anticipated. I think what's especially frustrating about this is when we look at our goals and our inability to follow through on them is, is that we sort of place an F, right, on that assignment. If it's an assignment that we've given ourselves is that we say, well, well, I failed or I've fallen short on that assignment. But what's worse is a lot of times we don't just leave it there, that it's not merely that on this goal that we've set out for ourselves have we failed, but we make that failure our identity. 
that not only was this project, was this goal, this plan, this resolution a failure, but we sort of internalize this and suddenly I'm the failure, right? That that is who I am. And when we come to that point, what can happen is, is our consciences, our minds, can be racked by profound guilt. You know, well, if I would have just done this differently, or if I would have been more disciplined, or if I would have woken up early, or if I was better at taking notes in meetings, or whatever it would be, if I had a different type of character or set of habits, this wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have ended up at this point. Maybe, on the other hand, the reaction, the feelings that we have about these failures, this, this falling short, isn't maybe necessarily guilt, but it could be disappointment, discouragement, apathy. Well, you know, I laid out these plans, and they never seem to go the way that I want, and so why try? Why, why put in the effort? And so instead of guilt, it's disappointment, it's apathy. Or maybe for you it's some admixture of both. But in either case, oftentimes what we can find is that broken plans can lead to fractured faith. That our faith, our trust, our confidence in ourselves is broken. Now, that isn't just, doesn't just apply to kind of um, superfluous goals that we set for ourselves, whether it's the way we approach work or wanting to work out more or lose weight or change the way we eat or whatever it might be, that can also apply, as we know all too well, to the way we conduct our spiritual life, to the way that we um, usher our walk with Christ. And so it's not just merely that the scale doesn't say what we want or our meetings at work aren't going the way that we expected or we aren't as far on our reading plans or prayer as we anticipated. But maybe our goal for 2021 was to gossip less. Or maybe our goal for 2021 was to control our anger. Maybe our goal was to... uh, set better boundaries with our family, not allow our family, our kids, our loved ones to even be an idol and dominate uh, our lives, but to set healthy boundaries with them. Maybe it was to change what our browsing history looks like or to get our drinking in check. Or maybe it's that it's not merely that food is something that you struggle with, but it might be uh, a crutch or any other substance. And so this challenge of broken plans extends beyond just, you know, kind of day-to-day things, but to the way we view ourselves before God, before Christ. Now, as I was reflecting on this and preparing for this sermon, there was a painting that I've seen, you know, numerous times that was just sort of etched in my memory. And if, Andrew, if you could bring that up here. Okay, so this is a really famous icon, all right? So this type of art, it comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church. So when we talk Eastern Orthodox, there aren't a lot in kind of America and Western uh, Europe. They come from you know, Eastern Europe, Russia, Greece, the Middle East. And so this type of art is very common in those uh, type of churches. And they don't, they don't do statues in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's all paintings because they don't want anything that you kinda, can kind of grasp your arms around. Uh, but what this is, is it's a painting, or they call it an icon, uh, of the Trinity. And so each of those sort of angelic-looking figures that you see there uh, represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three members of the Holy Trinity. And if you look real closely, you might have to squint um, at the screen here, but right on the table that is in between all of them is a cup. 
and your eyes have got to be a lot better than mine because I can't see it on, on uh, the back screen here. But in that cup, in the painting, is, uh, is blood. All right, it's red. And in that blood is an image of, of a lamb, of a sheep. And this painting, you might ask, well, Andrew, why, why was this at the forefront of your mind? Why was this etched in your mind as you were thinking about failed New Year's resolutions or failed plans? Well, here's why is what this whole painting is meant to represent. Uh, that ram, that sheep that's sort of in that tiny little cup right there, is that one thing that we need to be reminded of is that in the Trinity, in God's mind, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was always a plan. There was always a plan, and it always involved the shedding of blood. It always involved that the Son, Jesus Christ, would come down to earth and be our sacrifice. Now, as we delve into this today, and we delve into our readings, I think it's essential that we understand, that we remember that God's plans are not like man's plans. God's plans, unlike our own, are not subject to circumstances or at risk, or they're indeterminate in their outcome. They are settled. They are determined. They are set. And they are sure. Now, if we think about, like, how does God plan, Right? is, I think that's really hard for us to conceive of because God is outside of time. You know, if we think of our own lives, like, we could pull out the, the uh, footage, the reel, the film, and look at it one frame at a time, right? Just one frame at a time because we're stuck within time itself. But God sees everything all at once, continually, once and, or once and for all, forever. But theologians since the beginning of time have tried to understand how is it that God makes his decisions. Right? Like when God is ordering the universe, deciding what he's going to do, the big question is, is what does God do first? And I think in our readings, what it drives home today is that what God does first is he decides to send a rescuer. He decides to send Jesus. He decides that regardless of what might happen afterwards, his first decision is that there will be a rescue for us. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that at the center of all creation is Jesus' cross? Why does it matter that God decides to send Jesus first before he decides anything else about what humanity will look like or what we'll do or how we'll fail or what we'll need to be saved from? Why does it matter that God sends Jesus first? Well, what does our passage today say? In Romans 5, Paul writes that while we were still weak, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. It matters that we know this, because as we transition from those mundane things about losing weight or reading more often or eating better to our prayer life, our walk with Jesus Christ, those sins that stand between us and God, it's not merely that we have broken plans that have fractured our faith, it's that we have broken God's law, which has fractured our relationship with God. It's not merely that we have failed or we are a failure, but it's that we have sinned and we are a sinner. The guilt and disappointment and discouragement are not merely practical and interfere with our, with our ability to functionally go forward in life day to day, but it can oftentimes cause us to run away from Jesus Christ himself. 
And so Paul reemphasizes in our reading from Romans today that it wasn't while we were good or while we had uh, checked off all the boxes on God's checklist that Christ died for us. But it's while we were weak that Christ died for the ungodly. That God would come down in his son Jesus Christ and die for us while we're ungodly, I think evokes a question from us like, that, that doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? And so Paul instinctively kind of, kind of digs in to that. And so again he says that while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on and he says people rarely even sacrifice their own life for good people, for the righteous. You know, maybe a hero might dare to die for a good person, but Christ's love is distinguished in this, that it wasn't while we were good, but while we were bad, while we were sinners, that Christ died for us. And Paul is obligated to call this out because he is pointing at something we instinctively already know. Because if we have sincerely and honestly held ourselves against the standard of God's law, even just the Ten Commands of the Ten Commandments, we know we're weak. We know we have sinned. We know we are sinners. And so in the midst of our guilt and disappointment and discouragement, our response, my response, as, I, as we look at ourselves, is that if God's bet is going to be on me, if God's bet is going to be on us, I know myself. I know my sin. And I wouldn't bet on me. Like if I, had, if I were a gambling man, I wouldn't bet on my own performance. And I would much less expect God to bet on my performance. But what Paul drives home in our reading from Romans this morning is that it was never dependent upon us, upon whether we ourselves and our own sinfulness were a good bet. Because God is not a statesman deploying troops or a business leader weighing competing investments. God is not an ace blackjack player weighing the odds of whether we're going to bust or not. God has already seen all the film of every person's life all at once. He knows our failure. He knows our weakness. He knows our sin better than even we ourselves do. But what Paul writes is in spite of all of this, in spite of all of this, that God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. How can this be? In our second reading from 1 John, St. John unpacks this by showing us not only what God does, but who God is. It's not merely, as John puts it, that God is loving, but it's that God himself is love. God is love. After John 3.16, I think that's maybe perhaps one of the most popular or well-known verses in the Bible, that God is love. And when we read this, we shouldn't be confused that John is saying that God is a mere squishy, romantic love. God isn't sentimentality. That's not what John is saying. What John is saying is that God is faithful to his covenants. Or put more plainly, God keeps his promises God's faithfulness never, never runs out. And how does God prove his faithfulness? Well, as John tells us, God keeps his promises 
he demonstrates that he is love itself in this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, or put another way, the sin-canceling sacrifice for our sins. And so that it's not, not that we love God, it's not that we are faithful, it's not that we keep our covenant promises, plans, goals, or resolutions, but we can trust that God does what he says, what he promises, because God loves us. God, unlike us, upholds his covenant. God keeps his plans. God fulfills what he has resolved since eternity past to do. And in doing this, God proves that he is not merely loving, but love itself. So if we have to look to any one place to be reminded that God keeps his promise, we look to the cross. Because God has sent Jesus Christ as his sin-canceling sacrifice for our sins. As our painting shows, the cup, Christ's blood, Jesus' cross, God's promise of a rescuer comes first. And I can't answer the question or read the mind of God to understand why God would first decide to send a rescuer before even deciding or kind of laying out what are the sins that we would commit that we would need to be rescued from. That I don't think the Bible tells us. But it seems clear, both from Scripture and from our own personal experience, why it matters to us as his people that God did indeed choose before he chose to do anything else that he would send his son Jesus to be our rescuer. It's important that that is God's first decision. And here's why. I want you to take just for a moment, I want you to consider the way in which you make your own plans whether it be for a vacation or a New Year's resolution or just what you're going to get done this week or what you're going to get uh, at the grocery store. When you make plans and you make promises, I'm guessing you kind of first begin by going through, well, how have I done things like this similarly before, right? If I set out a plan that's similar or I've made a promise that's similar, I'm going to draw on my past experiences to understand Kind of, how do I think it's going to go this time? What do I need to plan for now? And as you're thinking about what's happened before, what's gone well, what hasn't, um, you also start to think through, well, who are the other involved parties in, in this plan that I'm laying out? Who's going to help me fulfill these promises? And as you go through, you'll think about the different times in the past when people have come through or where they've dropped the ball, where they have really upheld you or where they've even gone so far as to injure you or to hurt you. And with each new input, consideration, preconception that we add in, oftentimes what we do, we hedge ourselves against risk. We modify our plans ahead of time, and so we kind of do a preemptive course correction so we can avoid that pain that we've experienced in the past. Now, in one sense, this is just good planning, right? You know, we, we draw on the past, plan for the future. One of the downsides to this is that oftentimes this sort of reconsidering and, and hedging against risk and hedging against other parties, other people, especially makes us hesitant. It fills us with hesitancy and reservation. 
that by considering all of the previous inputs, all of our past experiences and decisions, it oftentimes causes us to be more hesitant about pursuing into the future. But what Paul tells us this morning, and what John tells us this morning in our readings, is that God has no such hesitancy. If God's first decision, first promise that he makes outside of himself is to send the rescuer, to send Jesus, to send the cross, before he makes any prior considerations. God isn't first processing prior inputs and preconceptions. He isn't hedging against possible injury, obviously, or altering plans to avoid failure. His plan, unlike ours, isn't contingent upon a set of preconditions. And so God's promise, the first thing that he decides before anything else, before he decides anything else, is to send Jesus, to send our rescuer, to send the cross. And that means that God's promise to send Jesus is totally unconditional. It's an open-ended commitment to us. It overrides any sin or any failure or anything that could come in the way of our ultimate rescue. God, to us, the cross is at the center of all creation and everything else, time and history and our walk of life and our sins and our failures orbits around that. Because the cross is at the center. Not only is God's promise in the cross, the sending Jesus, the rescuer already set, we can trust that it's going to be effective that God doesn't leave the results to chance. As I said before, we probably wouldn't bet on ourselves if our ultimate salvation was dependent upon our own performance. That's probably a bad bet. But God makes the decision to send the Son, to send the Rescuer, because the Son, unlike us, can be trusted. The Son, Jesus, is trustworthy the Son will do what, from eternity past, the Son has always been doing, which is being faithful to God the Father. And so God's promise in the cross is not only unconditioned, dependent upon nothing, but it is guaranteed, period, for all those who are in Jesus Christ. And that should give us great confidence. Because as we read through scriptures or we read through the history of mankind and we see all the sinfulness that is going to unfold, we can remember that it's guaranteed. And so when we read that Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God's response is still, my son dies for the weak. When Abraham puts his way to the promised land, God still says, my son dies for the hesitant. When David himself, God's chosen king, becomes an adulterer and a murderer, God says, my son dies for the sinful. When Peter denies Christ, God says, my son's cross is even for the cowardly. When we fail, when we sin, when we indulge in iniquity and all of our plans and goals and resolutions become unraveled and come to naught. God responds, My love is demonstrated 
not in your performance, but in this. Not that you loved me, but even now, in your sin, my son is the sin-canceling sacrifice for you. So as you leave today, I want you to leave with this knowledge that God has planted Christ's cross firmly, unwaveringly, at the center of creation. It is the means by which he fulfills his promises to you, and it is the guarantee that God always, always keeps his promises. Amen. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called us here together this morning by your providence. God, we think of those who are in the fields or otherwise unable to join us here this morning, and we know that your spirit is present with them as well. We pray that as your people, whether gathered in this place or here in the surrounding area, that you would make known to us that you always keep your promises. We needn't ask that you be with us because you're always with us. We needn't ask that maybe might you forgive our sins because you have already promised to do so. But we pray, God, that we might have a firm knowledge, a grasp, and we may cling ever tightly to the cross, which is the means of our salvation. And so, God, in the moments that we share together here and what's left of this morning or in the day or week that's ahead of us, and whatever might be before us, whether it be success or failure, righteousness or sin, that we might not find our confidence in our own performance, but our confidence in you and in your son's cross and all that you gave there. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. This one on. Did you hear? Okay. Uh, we'll take this time now. This might help too. For reflection um, and prayer.